Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to travel to sunny Miami because Miami and Florida has become a big hub for startups and for fintech. And also that means it's not just founders, but it's also investors and the people who can help them with uh, their knowledge about growing businesses. So that's why we're going to talk to Carl from M13. And we're going to find out more about how does that work from their perspective? What are the industry verticals that they are most interested in? and why Miami, Florida is such a, an attractive location these days for startups and investors. Welcome, Carl. How are you today? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get to do what you do today? And and also, yeah, working in the sunny location, like in, in the good old days, when I lived in the United States, people told me like, you can only work in cities where there is an ugly weather, right? So yeah. New York or London, well, you cannot work in Miami, but things have changed, right? Things have definitely changed. I think there's a silver lining with everything. And on the pandemic, it really created this opportunity for people to find the optimal places to work. But we'll jump into the end of the story there. So maybe I'll just give you a little brief on my background and who I am. So I was trained as an engineer in undergrad and uh, have been an operator for 25 years since then. Did an MBA in between at Columbia. But I started a couple of companies, one in the late 90s, which I sold in 2000, and one in the mid-2000s that I sold in 2010. The company in the mid-2000s was actually a fintech company and was really my first exposure to true kind of financial business, but did it really from a technology side. We built that company up to about $140 million in revenue, and then I sold that company in early 2010. And then after that, a couple of years later, I joined as COO. I joined the founding team at the very early stages of a company named DigitalOcean. Worked there for six years, helped build the whole organization globally. And by the time I left, we were doing like 250 million in revenue. But obviously since then, I left in end of 2018, was a key part of getting the company IPO ready. And since then the company's gone public and now it's running somewhere in the round of $600 million run rate. So it was a pretty good exit, was a pretty good outcome and really excited about that business for the long haul. But I really started in venture and started doing what I'm doing off the back of that. So having had a pretty long career in building and growing companies and seeing exits of different types, it really, I think, equipped me to partner with my current partners at this fund and, uh, and launch the fund too at the time in 2019, which was a $200 million fund, $190 million fund to be exact. And then since then, we've launched a $400 million fund last year as our fund three. And that's obviously M13. And we have one of our core focuses is in the future of money, which is where we think about finance. I see. So DigitalOcean was a New York business. I think coming down to Miami was a combination of obviously having exited that company, looking to find a place for me and my family to live, certain tax benefits and things that exist in Florida, 
but also I think along with the pandemic, it demonstrated an opportunity for people to be able to work effectively from remote locations. So I actually invest heavily across the whole of the US and only have a nominal amount of investments physically in Miami, but I guess communication and transport is now so good that it makes it very easy to operate in that way. I understand. Now, can you describe M13? What is it really? Because you talked about investing, you talked about funds, so obviously it sounds like a VC firm, but you also emphasize a lot that you are helping startups and provide more than just the money, right? This is yeah. obviously what many VC firms do, and that's the right way to do it. But sometimes they even have a separate growth consulting arm or it's a venture growth studio first and investors second. So how does it work for you? Where are your priorities? When my partners approached me to join them in this fund, I think we all had a very aligned perspective that venture of the future was not really what venture of the past was. And that with all the experience that I'd had and other founders I knew had with their venture investors over a 20, 25 year career, we realized there was definitely a core part missing. Even venture firms that had, you know, platforms to support their founders weren't really as actively engaged or proactive in helping their founders find success. So the whole principle of how we started M13 was to say, hey, we need to be a real operator first business. We need to focus on partnering with our founding teams and helping them be as successful as possible, Act proactively getting involved in their strategies and helping them execute on key parts of the business that would otherwise perhaps take a lot longer and be a lot more expensive to execute on. And I found in my career plenty of times I spent my time spinning my wheels, trying to solve problems that I'd never seen before, when if I had the right support mechanism behind me, I could have accelerated through those problems far more efficiently. And so that's really what we focused on building. So with our first fund, we actually invested a bunch of money outside of the fund, just in operations to build what I would class as one of the best executive teams, multifunctional executive teams you can imagine. So I took a bunch of really great operators in different areas of skill, whether it's talent or data or brand or growth or product, and pulled them together into a core team that was the operating side of our partnership. And we would make investments and then we would get actively involved with our founders in helping them navigate and build their businesses. And uh, it's translated incredibly well. As you said, a lot of firms say and claim that they do these things, but really for us, the proof is in the pudding. Like it's translated incredibly well for our portfolio. We have a very strong NPS with our founders. And I think our reputation really reflects the level of support and help and the proactive approach towards helping our founders find success. And that's really where we feel as though we differ from from the general investment. Good stuff. Now, you mentioned the fund sizes and the number of funds already, but maybe let's recap once again. So how long have you been operational and how much money have you already invested and how many startups have you invested in? Yeah, we've we so I've been with the company for two funds. So fund two is a $190 million fund. We have invested all of our principal capital and we have a small amount of capital for follow-on investments continuing with our existing portfolio. We launched fund three as a $400 million fund last summer. We've invested um, somewhere in the range of 60% of our principal capital, but we hold about 50% of our capital in reserve. So we have a lot of dry powder to continue investing in new companies as well as investing in more companies, also more in the companies that are existing in our portfolio and supporting them in their growth trajectory. And so we we believe that we'll probably finish investing the principal dollars in this fund at some point in the second half of next year. And at that time, we'll be looking to launch our fund four as the next iteration of the, of the business. I see. So what kind of check sizes does this translate to? 
So we really do two different types of checks. Our core investments, which is the area that we're obviously most bullish on, five to $15 million checks. And then we obviously hold a reserve to follow on those. Generally like to lead series A's in that. If it's a very big series A, then maybe we'll co-lead. But generally we think with a five to $15 million check, we have the opportunity to lead the series A. We also have a discovery program, which is more like a one to $5 million check. Those are smaller checks, probably late seeds or seed type checks. We'll usually co-lead or partner with someone to do those deals. And, and those are where we find really interesting opportunities that are probably earlier than, than appropriate for a series, full series A transaction. I see. All right. Now you mentioned future of money, right? It's one of the yes. topics or themes that you're following. So what does that really mean? Sometimes people talk about pro programmable money, the Web3, DeFi, all kinds of things. So what is future of money for you? And I hope you don't say it will be still green. <laughs> of course, yes. But I hope it will be somewhat yeah. more digital. Yeah, I mean, there's three particular categories that we break this into. One is a more more traditional fintech, which are services that that democratize financial services for the consumer or for small medium businesses. And we see a lot of opportunity in that, a lot of opportunity where kind of these old traditional banks just have kind of too convoluted of a structure and a process and not really a technically enabled process to facilitate the real needs that a lot of these businesses have. The second is obviously the Web3 marketplace and the application of money in the Web3 world. The translation of Web3 as an asset or as a smart contract into something that is actually a financial management tool. And we like to look at mainly the infrastructure side of things like that. And we'll talk in a little bit about some of the investments that we've made, but uh, but we, we like to think about what are the building blocks upon which the, the future forms of currency will live and future forms of value and ownership will live. And then the third one, which is an interesting one, is we've grouped prop tech into this because we actually are thinking about it as the largest asset class in the U.S., also something that is usually the largest investment that an individual consumer might make. And so we look at a lot of different tools that deliver real estate as a financial instrument or facilitate real estate transactions or things like that. And so we look at PropTech a little bit. We only you know, have a deep dive into PropTech, but we have some pretty good bets in PropTech that are part of our future of money concept. I see. But I know as a firm, you also look at other industries or industry verticals, right? Beyond finance. So how important is fintech for you as a firm or out of that yeah. fund yeah. is this part of it finance part of it healthcare etc transport or what have you what's interesting is web3 translates into all of our different categories we have four main categories future of money is one future of health future of work and future of commerce so you can see how things like future of commerce has an implication into money Future of work, a lot of it is around managing the financial operations of gig economy and things like that. So there's a lot of money components in that. Future of health is probably a little bit more divorced from the money concept, but, but those are the four main pillars. Future of money is obviously a very big focus for us. I'd say at this point probably represents, if you include the Web3 side, anywhere from 30 to 40% of our current investments in this fund and probably even in the previous fund. But but I would say that Web3 does transcend horizontally across all those categories. We're seeing really interesting Web3 applications in future of work, future of commerce, a bunch of different places. Then before Web3 was ever invented, I always used to say that I take fintech very widely. And to me, almost any business can be a fintech business. 
maybe sure. apart from life sciences, if you talk about financing the research, that could be. Obviously, the research itself is something different. But uh, you talked about the check sizes and your focus when where you are investing when it comes to stages of development of the companies. And it was a great point that you mentioned as well that you obviously put some money aside for follow-ons, right? So when you look at your plans maybe going forward, like how long do you think you can stay with that company? So say that they need to raise money five times. So you're going to do one more follow-on, maybe two, and then you're looking to exit. And how many years does this translate to? That's a great question. Listen, our investment horizon is up to 10 years. So we're not looking to exit anytime quickly. We're really, we have to remain very aligned with the founders on how they're thinking about monetizing the, the business. And we're not looking for quick exits or quick secondary sales of oppositions or anything like that. What we'll generally do is we will continue investing in the company up to a certain value. Um, mainly on the, we'll do pro rata. If not, sometimes we'll try and increase our ownership if we're really excited about the company. But it's mainly driven by the economics at the time of the particular round. Obviously, we have a certain demand of economics in our fund that we have to accommodate. If a business has grown to a multi-billion dollar valuation and is raising hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, we may not be able to participate out of the main fund because we may see the exit opportunity as a two or three X perhaps versus a 10 to 20 X potential from that point forward. So it doesn't make sense for us to dilute our returns. Having said that, we do often do SPVs to participate and allow our LPs to to participate in a sidecar into those investments. And we've done that a number of times. And we like to use our pro ratas to facilitate those transactions going into the later rounds. And also, we have contemplated as we go into fund four, what would it look like for us to build kind of an opportunity growth fund where we have a bucket of money which has a different return profile, but also a much lower risk profile that would really be focused on investing in the later rounds of our portfolio companies where we have real confidence that they're going to realize an exit in the short term to come. So there's, yeah, there's a mix of ways in which we do it. I think in terms of core fund investment, we'll participate for two or three rounds beyond the one that we've joined, but there comes a point where these companies just get too big and it doesn't make sense for us anymore. Of course. Now you mentioned economics, so let's talk about valuations as well, because of course, many investors have been saying that the valuations are crazy and now we're having quite a tough year around the world so the valuations have gone down maybe could you share some example when you were approached you looked at something that you liked everything but the valuation expectations of the founders were unreasonable so what what was unreasonable in your mind you did mention that you invest in pre-seed seed as well exploration so maybe there is no revenue but maybe they said this is a hundred million dollar company i don't know maybe they did say five million and you said it's fine or not so what was unreasonable in your mind and what continues to be unreasonable and where you think the reasonable number or metrics lie yeah it's a great question. I, I will, I'm not going to say any names <laughs> to keep the innocent from being judged, but it's a very interesting di- dynamic that we're seeing right now. The reality is most investors have stepped back and are reassessing valuations across the market. Founders often who either are comparing themselves to competitive companies that raised in Q4 of last year or comparing themselves to their previous rounds, perhaps at the middle or end of last year, um, come into conversations with inflated perspectives on where their valuation should be. 
I think that the way it got a little wild. So you would get seed companies getting valued like they were series A companies and series A companies getting valued like they were series B companies. But fundamentally, it comes down to what are the proof points that you've demonstrated that qualify you for the stage of funding that you're looking for? If have you, you've got a proof of concept, you've got product out that you're starting to create revenue, but you haven't really demonstrated product market fit or massive scale capability. Are you truly a series A or are you still late seed? If you've, if you've demonstrated, you've validated your business, got product market fit, but you're still proving out your growth, your growth capabilities, and you just haven't totally figured those growth channels out. Are you still a series, are you really a series B or are you still a series A? And so the way we think about it, I think is just a little bit of a stricter guideline as to where is this company in its journey? Obviously you always have to think about the long-term opportunity of what the business is, but based upon where the company is in its journey, gives us a much better assessment of where their value really lives today. And we found that's pretty consistent with other investors. So even if somebody, come, a founder comes to the table with unrealistic expectations, they're probably getting pushed back across the board. And ultimately we found what's interesting is more founders today have come to us and told us that it's not really the valuation that's driving the deal making, it's the relationship and the value that they can get from the partner M13 or whatever other investor there is. So we have seen deals where we have come in with what we feel is a realistic valuation. They have other offers potentially at higher valuations, but they choose to come and work with us because they want to work. They want, they want to have access to our machine and they want to work with us as their partners in growing the business. And I inevitably there's going to be deals that just don't happen because we're just too far apart and where we see the value of the business. But all in all, I'd say we've gotten in the latter part of this year to a pretty steady state where those conversations happen, they're understood, and we end up finding ourselves in pretty reasonable valuations on a lot of the businesses we're looking at. You don't have the same behavior that we had a year ago where you have one deal, it gets hot, 10 people are trying to get in it, and everyone just bids everybody up and makes it just unaffordable. That's not really happening anymore. Now it's really much more of a structured process and properly priced process. And I'm seeing decisions being made as much around valuation as they are around who the partner is and how they want to work with them. Okay. All right. Maybe a bit lighthearted version of the same question, but if I come to you with just a deck, you like the idea, you like the team and everything. Yeah. What would be the highest number that you would be ever writing as a check? There's so many variables. I'm going to, I'll throw you some numbers, but I, please don't hold me to them. <laughs> but if you've got an idea, you got the technology built, you haven't taken it to market, you haven't proven the business, really you're a late seed for us. I would say best case scenario, if it's a multi-billion decacorn opportunity, it would be looking at a $50 million max valuation, but more realistically, you're going to be anchored in around the $20 million valuation mark, 20 to 25 million. So it depends on a few things. How much are you raising? How co confident are we around the, the tech? How many proof points have you actually demonstrated? Even if you haven't actually taken it to market, do you have an incredible pipeline of customers like chomping at the bit to get hold of it? There's so many variables that drive that range, but that I'd say would be a realistic range of what you'd be thinking about. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. Now, if you come back to your portfolio companies, and maybe these are from your first fund, because maybe it's better just to talk about the ones that you exited already from, but what are the success stories that you're most proud of? And maybe let's link it to potentially some advice for founders. What has gone so well 
in the companies you invested where you're so happy with your investment that maybe other founders should pay attention to? Yeah, yeah. It's, I have to say every founder's journey is very unique. And so you can definitely get learnings from other journeys. But at the end of the day, your choices and your process is unique to the founder that's building the business. I'm going to focus mainly on fintech. There are definitely some areas where I'm super proud of some investments we've made that are outside of fintech. But to focus purely on fintech, I mentioned a couple. One company is named called Lightning Labs. Lightning Labs is an infrastructure play. Layer 2 sits on top of Bitcoin and facilitates coin transactions at much lower cost, much faster speed, makes Bitcoin essentially a, an exchange-worthy asset rather than just a reserve of value. And they've now introduced a solution called Taro, which allows you to actually trade other assets like stable coins through the platform, through the second layer. But it is incredibly powerful infrastructure play that really speaks to the future of what how bitcoin as a value reserve can be actually used as an exchange as well the ceo is a lady named elizabeth stark incredibly impressive founder incredibly powerful and connected and just a great speaker and just is if there's anything to learn from her in her journey it's the ability to deliver a vision she is inspired the whole category, the whole Web3 category of founders and businesses has had businesses built on top of her platform, has built a really great team around her. Like that ability to deliver vision and deliver this inspiration is like one of the key things that I think any founder that's trying to build a very big business needs to possess. And I give her a huge amount of credit for that. And I think that's been a big driver on why she's been able to, to develop the business she has. And at this point, her most recent valuation was in the unicorn status. We came in very early. So it's been obviously a great return profile to date. And we think that the opportunity in the long term is massive. So that's very exciting. Another one, just more on a traditional fiat side of fintech, a company named Row, Row Banking. Two founders, Everett and Alex. Everett being the category expert, Alex being very technical. We again came in very early and they've raised a bunch of money since us, obviously, but we participated in all those rounds. But they've built a banking solution for SMBs that fully integrates into the SMBs financial platforms, whether it's QuickBooks or NetSuite or whatever it is, and basically automates a lot of the process of accounting against their banking. And that fully integrated platform obviously makes it really easy for SMBs and other companies to integrate their banking into their accounting systems. And, and with that, there's a whole bunch of services, whether it's credit card services or expense management or bill pay or all these different things that come out of this banking solution that really create a nice, easy process for SMBs to take advantage of. They've been growing like crazy. They've acquired an incredible set of investors after our first investment. And so it's an incredible board. And I think the takeaway there is just the, the partnership between the two founders is incredibly strong. And the balance of the complement between Everett's category knowledge and capabilities and Alex's technical skill set and product skill set is just a really perfect complement and marriage. So again, one takeaway is if you're looking to build a big firm, how do you put together the right founding team to make sure you have an incredible complement with whoever your partner or partners are to get the outcome that you want? So those are two really good examples of fintech businesses that we're super excited about amongst the, a, a bunch of investments that we've actually made. Wonderful. So how do you actually find founders and businesses like these? I think on your website, you say that you are thesis driven, which is what I like to hear a lot, but I'd like to know more about what it means to you. Because some people 
just say, look, we have a huge network, we have a huge inbound deal flow. Unless the founder is already known by another founder in our network, then the bar is much higher. And this is also why some people say if the 96% of managing partners in VCs are white males, then that's why also they invest in founders like these, right? But on the other hand, because there's so many VC firms out there these days, you need to have an extra edge, right? And you did say you are a serial entrepreneur and you have a network where you can provide expertise, etc. But also it sounds like you do a proactive outreach. Yes, sourcing is always the golden goose of what we do. But obviously there's a huge amount of inbound. I think our brand and our reputation precedes us and it's allowed us to welcome a lot of people that are just essentially looking for introductions to us. A lot of opportunities that come to us these days are either founders asking their founder friends or even asking their early investors for introductions to us. And, uh, and obviously we take all of those very seriously and we look at all those businesses. We also have a lot of community activities that we do where we try and get involved in the community. We do dinners, we do fireside chats, we bring experts in particular categories to do talks on things. And we try and gather community groups in different geographies to, to pull together, build our community and build our network. Ultimately, I don't think you can get away from the idea that the network is the key validating point on a founder, but I don't think that getting a referral needs to be the only way to build that network. So we're proactively out there trying to get to know these communities and trying to build our relationships, which in turn will present back to us opportunities that are exciting. And then also just trying to be the best at what we do and allow our reputation to, to lead the way to entrepreneurs that are looking to target us as, as core investors for their businesses. So yeah, so it's really a combination of things. We are thesis driven. We see, I have to say 2000 companies every year. We only invest in maybe 20. It's a big needle in a haystack process for us to find the ones that we really love. And even those 20 that we invest in, a lot of them are smaller discovery checks. Only eight or so, six to eight maybe would be core checks in any individual year. It is, it's, we're very, particular ultimately about who we partner with, because we honestly commit so much of our time and resources to everyone that we invest in, that we don't want to just throw money around and not be able to actually back it up with our promises. I see what some people call spray and pray, right? Yeah, we don't do that. <laughs> All right. Okay. So great stuff. Now, who would you like to hear from most and what would be the best way to reach out and to find out more about what you do in terms of who i would love to reach out to me obviously as i said if it's about building our community i'd love to meet more people that are active in the community whether they're professionals or whether they're founders but whether it's a sharing community knowledge about the industry and where it's going what's happening sharing ideas debating ideas or whether it's actually looking at different business opportunities and different projects that founders are trying to launch always happy to do that. I think the best way probably to reach me is through LinkedIn. You can also reach me through Twitter, which is Kalamar NYC, K-A-L-O-M-A-R-N-Y-C from my old days in New York. <laughs> and uh, otherwise you can just look my name up in LinkedIn and connect with me in LinkedIn. And so those are probably the best ways to reach me. But uh, obviously we're open doors at M13, love to talk to founders. Please look up our events, come join our community activities, get to know us, meet us face-to-face. -face. That's always the easiest way to really get connected and create a more meaningful connection. Brilliant. So look up Carl Alomar from M13 on LinkedIn. And thank you so much, Carl, for your time and insights. And good luck to you and M13.
Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.